Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard John say it and followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following him and said, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And Jesus said, come and you will see. And so they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was already the 10th hour. Now, one of those two disciples who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. First, he went and found his own brother and said to Simon, we have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked on him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let us pray. Father, we believe that you inspired your servant John to record these words. We believe these words not only had power in the day that John wrote them, but these words have power this day because they're inspired by your Holy Spirit. And so we pray, come Holy Spirit, open this word for us, perhaps as never before, that we would be changed more and more to be like Jesus for the sake of the world. For we pray it in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. I invite you to be seated. Well, this is our cast weekend, the weekend where four years now, along this is my fourth cast weekend. Can you imagine? In March, it'll be four years. Four cast weekends, an opportunity for us to cast vision, to in some ways cast a net, to gather the world, to even cast a production because we all have roles in the vision that God lays before us. But the question that comes up when we come to a moment like cast is, well, what is the vision that God has put before us? What is the vision that God has placed before Christ church? And how do we continue to live into it in 2020 and beyond? Well, we've articulated in different ways over the years, 34 years of Christ church history, 35 years this year, But the way we've articulated it, since I can't articulate, the way we've articulated it for the last few years has been like this, to say that Christ Church Plano exists to invite ordinary people to know Jesus and to become like him for the sake of the world. See, the vision is to be the church, to be the full-orbed body of Christ. It's not a new vision. In fact, we could go through all kinds of branding scenarios and rewrite vision statements and paint them on the side of the church. That's what a lot of churches were doing in the 1980s. But really, at the end of the day, the vision has not changed in 2,000 years. The call is to be the church, to live into fully what that means. We articulate that in our core values. Being the church means that we are a worshiping community, that we are a community about formation, Growing up to be like Christ, 
That we are a community about belonging, actually having fellowship, family fellowship together. And finally, we are a community of compassion. A community that's not self-oriented, but rather oriented towards the other. That's what it means to be the church. We live into being the church. But you know what's hard with the vision? It's not, I mean, it's hard enough to be the church, but you know what's even harder? Is the invite part. Christ Church Plano exists to invite ordinary people to know Jesus. I mean, maybe like me, you're not a natural evangelist. I get terrified the minute the preacher starts bringing up evangelism in the sermon. Oh, here we go. I mean, I'm not a natural evangelist. I am getting on a plane this afternoon. Here's what's not going to happen. I am not going to get on the plane and be that guy that after adjusting the armrest between me and my seatmate, you know, and gently try to get to know each other a little bit, that once we're kind of like up in the air, that at that point then I'll lean over and say, can I ask you a question? If we didn't make it, do you know you'd go to heaven? Like, I don't want to be that guy. I want to put my noise-canceling headphones on and watch the Downton Abbey movie. That's what I want to do this afternoon. See, the problem is, whether we feel we're natural evangelists or not natural evangelists, the call to invite others, the call to be an evangelist, a witness for the Lord, is not given to just a small portion of extraordinary Christians. It's given to every Christian. We are all, by nature of being Christ followers, those who share the good news, those who invite others to know Jesus. See, part of the problem with evangelism is we often feel too overloaded by it. We think like, oh my goodness, like, are you telling me I'm an evangelist? Therefore, I'm responsible for the entire process of what this person needs. I need to invite them, and then I need to work through all the apologetic arguments about all the reasons they don't believe, and then I need to be able to catechize them to teach them everything, like the whole creed. Like, I have to teach them everything that the creed means, and then we have to come to a decision point, and at some point, then they have to say yes to Jesus. I have to lead them through that. We get them baptized, and then we go into ongoing formation for their life. Is this what you're telling me I'm responsible for when you say every Christian is an evangelist? Absolutely not not. That work of transforming a human being from a sinner to a saint is what God does in his church. Our job, everyone's job, is that first point of invitation. We invite them in. And inviting them into the life of the church doesn't have to be only on a Sunday. It can be a Wednesday night at church on Wednesdays. It can be our Mardi Gras celebrations. It can be our men's and women's gather moments. But inviting people into the life of the church. That is the call of every Christian, to invite. And the reason we struggle with inviting is we've been given so many bad caricatures, haven't we? It's like the woman who's on the bus one day. She's a committed evangelist. And the man gets on the bus, he's just loaded drunk. And she's staggering down the middle and she says, I'm gonna evangelize him in a very loud voice. She says to him, everyone can hear, you know you're going straight to hell. The drunk man looks at her up and down the bus. 
Are you telling me I got on the wrong bus again? <laughs> like we don't want to be that person. We want to be winsome and loving and caring. But here's the amazing thing that John 1 tells us. This little story here, if you turn there with me, John 1, verse 35 to 42. This, this picture for us, this cast vision for Christ's church, shows us that being an evangelist is something that God has already worked in your heart. God has already done all the work necessary for you to be an evangelist. God has done all the work necessary already in you in order to make you someone who can easily, yes, I mean easily, live into, in the midst of fear and trepidation, but can easily move into invitation. Here's why. Here's what God has done for you to make you an evangelist. God, John 1 tells us, has made you an evangelist because he's made you peculiar. Yes, you and me as Christians are a peculiar people. And that opens the door to invitation. But not only has he made us peculiar, God has also, if you can hear it this morning, God has made each of you as Christians powerful. There is a power resident in you that the world can barely begin to comprehend. But not only are you peculiar, God has made you powerful, but finally, God has made you living proof. Living proof that the gospel works. And all of this, what God has done in you, makes you fit to be an evangelist, to invite the world in. See, first, God has made you an evangelist by making you peculiar. Look at verse 38 and 39 here in John 1. When the two disciples are following after Jesus, he turns and says, what are you seeking? What do they say? Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Now, we could miss it, but this is actually a very key discipleship phrase. It's the kind of thing a person would say to a rabbi. Where are you staying? What it means is, would you show me how you live? Like, take me to your house and show me how you do life. Because this is exactly what a disciple was doing with a rabbi. A rabbi was someone a disciple would look at and say, I want you to train me to live life the way you live. I want to learn everything about how you, yes, read the Bible, but also how you wash the dishes and how you talk to your neighbor and how you tidy up your house and everything you do. I want to see that life live in me. Right? You, you think of Godspell, the musical, that, that, that one tune out of it that get, got a little more famous, you know, day by day. Oh, dear Lord, three things I pray to see thee more clearly, love thee more dearly, follow thee more nearly day by day. That's a disciple's work to follow more and more nearly. There was a Jewish blessing that would be spoken over a, over a student. This idea that you're following so closely behind your rabbi, like everywhere the rabbi goes. Think of the dusty, dirty streets of the Middle East. And the Jewish blessing like this went to a, went to a student, an apprentice, a disciple. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. May you walk so closely that you're covered in his dust. And this is what it means to follow after Jesus. But let's be clear, Jesus' life, the life he lives is so weird. It's peculiar. It's strange. Jesus says things he's not supposed to say. He hangs out with people he's not supposed to hang out with. 
He keeps radically upsetting the apple cart of everyone in authority. Jesus lives a peculiar life, a weird, strange life. In fact, this is an argument, actually, back to that apologetics argument about dealing with people's questions of how can you prove to me this is true, right? One of the arguments for the truthfulness and the historicity of the accounts of Jesus is because he's so peculiar. Matthew Paris, a uh, British scholar and newspaper writer, um, a journalist, wrote this. These, this is the words of an atheist. came out a few years ago. He says, he published this in the, in the Spectator, a British newspaper, says this, if Jesus Christ had not existed, the church would not have invented him. He goes on to say this. This is an atheist. He says, when I consider all of Jesus' painfully counterintuitive sayings and parables, how he keeps saying things from the viewpoint of the world that are wrong, it becomes ever clearer that he must have been real. If Jesus had been a hoax, the church could have invented someone so much more convenient. Jesus is inconvenient. He's peculiar. He's strange what he says. And friends, if you and I are following after Jesus being covered in the dust of our rabbi, we are going to be peculiar too. I know we spend most of our lives trying not to be weird. Right? We, we work so hard not to be that peculiar one that stands out. We want to fit in. But friends, you're weird. You're Christians. The stuff we believe is crazy in this world. In a dying and broken world, what we believe is very, very peculiar. And here's the brilliance of the gift of that. God has made us a peculiar people and that opens the door to evangelism. It opens the door for invitation because we are so peculiar. I think of a young lawyer in his 20s who I knew in, in Ottawa and I remember talking to him, a young Christian. So he's in his 20s, he's single, um, living into that whole, I mean, very secular worldview. I mean, there's a reason I've said before that I think the Lord um, sent a Canadian to be your next rector because I've seen the world that's coming. I've seen what it is to live in secular North America. I know what it is to live in a place where the gospel is under fire every single day. And I know we live in the Bible Belt, but it ain't gonna be the Bible Belt much longer. We need to be prepared for what it is to live in a highly secularized climate. But this young man in his 20s, Christian, lawyer, he said, well, this is, this is how I live out my witness. It was kind of like a confession, like he was checking in with me to make sure it was okay. He said, here's what I do. He said, you know, lawyers in Ottawa, government lawyers work long, long hours. And when we're done, you know, y'all go out to the pub. And it's pub after pub. And it's sort of like the pub crawl till three o'clock in the morning. He says, I go out, these, these are my friends. And I, I, I do the pub crawl with them till three in the morning. He said, but I only have a couple drinks early in the night. And when they'll ask me why I don't keep drinking, I just don't get slammed like the rest of them. And that in itself kinds of is, a, is a peculiar moment. And I'll say, well, you know, as a, as a Christian, I believe there's some degree of, you know, moderation. And, and they go, oh, yeah, whatever. And, but he says, I stick with them. We hang out till three in the morning. And then he says, guess what? Then I'm the designated driver. Every, every weekend, I'm the designated driver, which means this. Every weekend, I become the hero. Because I'm the one that drags them home and drags them up into their apartments and gets them back into their beds. And I get a phone call somewhere Saturday afternoon when they finally wake up and they say, oh man, you're like my best friend. Like you dragged me out of that bar and you, you rescued me. And like, you're the hero. Week after week, he's the hero. And he said, you know what happens? So it takes a while, but whenever one of those friends hits a tragedy 
or a transition moment or something really hard in their life, he says, it's like clockwork. They phone me up and say, hey, I'm going through something right now. Can we have coffee? Because I know you believe in Jesus. And I think I need to talk to somebody about how to get my life straight. See, the peculiarity of our lives opens the door to invitation. And just in case you wonder whether the church is too peculiar to invite people into, I love how Romans or 2 Corinthians 2.15, Paul says, we are the aroma of Christ. We are the aroma of Jesus to those who are being saved and those perishing. We are the aroma of Jesus. But some will say, but isn't invitation to church a little weird? Like what we do here is kind of weird. You know, processions and men in dresses and all kinds. Like, isn't this a little weird? I mean, it all has different meaning. I know we're rehearsing the gospel, but isn't this a little too strange? And here's my point. I love telling this story. Again, back in Ottawa, this young girl coming to our church, smaller church, but 300, easy to identify new people every Sunday. I saw her, I could just tell the whole sermon she hated everything I was saying. You, you know what that feels like sometimes, I know, with me. But um, they just hated everything I was saying. And I could just see it, the look on her face. And so after the service, I made my way over to her. And I said, hey, we're so glad you're here. And she said, yeah, uh, you know, very alternative lifestyle. And she just she said, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for God. And I said, that's great. And then I asked her this. I said, to be honest, why did you pick us? I said, you know, Old church, like stone building, 140 years old, freezing cold in the winter, boiling hot in the summer, liturgy. I said, you know, like across the street, there's a church downtown that like meets in a movie theater and has a hologram preacher. And then there's, you know, the church over here with like smoke screen and like a rave that happens on Sunday morning. I said, like, why would you pick this? And I'll never forget what she said to me. She said, the God I'm looking for would be found in a house like this. Now, here's what she wasn't saying. I mean, understanding what she was saying was not somehow that God dwells in houses built by human hands. We know that's not true. But what she was saying was this. She said, the world out there has kicked me in the teeth my entire life. And the God I'm looking for has got to look different than that world. When I come looking for God, I'm looking for church. I'm looking for the peculiarity of God. I'm looking for the sacredness of God. I'm looking for the holiness and the otherness of God. I need church because that world is killing me. The peculiarity of Christians is precisely what the world is ultimately looking for. Because it is a reflection of the peculiarity of a God who loves this world, though he is so different from it. So God has made us peculiar. You're weird. Get used to it. But he's not just made you peculiar. He's made you powerful. And again, this is, this is where we, we, we struggle to believe this. I mean, verse 35 to 37. Listen, listen to what happens here. Um, John is, is, is looking and Jesus walked by and says, behold, the Lamb of God. Verse 37, the two disciples heard him say this and followed him. That's it. They heard John say, behold, the Lamb of God. And these two men started following him. Like, there was some power in John's words in that moment. And of course you think, yeah, of course there's power. It's John the Baptist. I mean, he's, you know, he's got power, right? 
But here's what Jesus says about John the Baptist. Hear this carefully. Matthew 11, verse 11 says this. Among those born of women has no one greater been born than John the Baptist, but the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. What Jesus is saying is the power that was present in John as he spoke those words is nothing in comparison with the power that is flowing through you as a Christian today. Knowing the full story of the death and the resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit and the ascension and the coming again of Jesus. There is a power at work in every Christian today greater than that is seen in John the Baptist. Because the biggest fear we have often is, what am I going to say? Like if I was going to invite somebody, what would I say? Because I figured they've, you know, they've been hurt by church. They've been hurt by the world. Like, I don't want to make it worse. What do I say? And Jesus' answer to us would be, don't worry about it. Literally, that's what Jesus actually says. Don't worry what you'll say. The Holy Spirit who dwells in you will give you the words. Trust that. Just start talking. Start inviting. See what the Holy Spirit does. Mark 13, verse 11, Jesus says, And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you will say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit speaking through you. And it's not just about trials being brought before court. This is every trial a Christian faces. Every moment when we wonder, what can I possibly say in this moment? It will not be you speaking. It will be the Holy Spirit. God will speak through you. And even if your words are not the best of words, the Holy Spirit will still use those words. I love to tell the story of the worst sermon I ever preached. Worst sermon. I mean, it was, it was, I mean, there's, I'm sure been lots, but this was like the absolute worst. But the first, fourth time I'd ever preached publicly. And it was so bad, like it was like watching a slow motion train wreck. It just got worse and worse by the minutes. And I mean, afterwards, later that afternoon, I wrote to a friend and I said, you know, he was preaching at another church across town. I was like, could you smell it from there? Like it was so bad. And I was so embarrassed even to be at the back of the church shaking hands after the sermon. And this woman walks up, this elderly woman walks up to me, shakes my hand. She says, you know, after hearing you preach, I could die. I'm like, I I know, me too. I know. It's, I'm rethinking my vocation. And she said, no, after hearing you preach, I can die. I'm, I'm, I'm terminal. I'm dying. I've been facing this for months and I've not been able to reconcile my heart before God. But after hearing that sermon, I'm ready to meet Jesus. Because it's not the words that we speak. It's the Holy Spirit using those words and transforming that moment for salvation purposes. Imperfect. Yes, you're going to get it wrong. You're not going to say it brilliantly and perfectly all the time. But it doesn't matter, Jesus says. Don't worry. Just invite. Fred Rogers. I haven't seen the the movie yet. Maybe I'll watch that on the plane. Fred Rogers. uh, Mr. Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Ordained Presbyterian minister. Best theology 
of the work of the Holy Spirit and evangelism I've ever heard. These are Mr. Rogers' words. It sounds like Mr. Rogers. He says this about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He says, between my lips and your ears is the land of the Holy Spirit. This is the power that is present in the life of every Christian. Not just a peculiarity that will open the door to invitation, but a power that will affect that invitation. And yes, it will take time. Just just as a side note, there's been a study recently that came out that said actually among non-believing populations, non-believing people from the time they first hear the gospel to the time of baptism on average takes seven years. Seven years. So that friend that you've invited to church twice and you're like, clearly a pagan. You might have another 50 or 60 invites to go. I mean, the challenge for us to communicate what those words mean, behold the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God, I mean, we have to somehow contain in the way we talk, explaining atonement theology that, you know, I'm a sinner and God sent his son to die on my behalf and, you know, he lived the life I should have lived and died the death I should have died and he rose again to defeat the power of death. You're thinking, how can I possibly articulate all of that? Do not worry what you will speak in that hour for it will be the Holy Spirit speaking through you. Just invite them in. But finally, God has made you an evangelist He's made you living proof. Your life, your story, your conversion is living proof. I love how the story ends with Peter, verse 42. Right? Jesus looks at him and says, you are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. I mean, as we read the rest of the story, we understand what Jesus is seeing in that moment. He's seeing the potential of transformation. He's saying, Peter, you ain't going to stay the same, buddy. John 16, 18, he uses the same language. He says, you are Peter, which means rock, and on this rock I will build my church, and the power of hell shall not prevail against it. The transformation of a human being is what happens when we come to Jesus. And this conversion, this transformation becomes This becomes the content of our testimony. This becomes the means by which we can share the fact that the gospel works. That God is actually doing stuff in our own lives. And just in case you hear this the wrong way, this does not mean that you needed to have a dramatic conversion moment. Monica and I talk about this all the time. I had a dramatic conversion moment. She grew up her whole life never not knowing the presence of God in her life. And so if you're like her, do you think, oh, I I don't really guess I have a testimony. No, you do. We all do. Because conversion, as 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us, is us being transformed daily from one degree of glory to the next. Conversion is not something that happens once. It is a continuing process in our lives. We are constantly and more further being converted every day. And every one of those conversions, every one of those transformations, every one of those times that God beats down the power of Satan in your life and you start living a new life following after Jesus, those conversion moments are the content of your daily, weekly testimony. This is what God is doing in my life today. This is how he's changing my life, my anger, my brokenness, my pain, my worries, my hurts. 
This is an ongoing, living, proof testimony. God is at work in my life. Let me tell you how. It was an amazing moment this morning. Um, our, I was coming out of the 745 service. And the backstory of this is my eldest daughter and I, over the last few years, have sort of, I've watched a, a transformation in the way she thinks about um, certain issues. I mean, I remember a number of years ago as an early teenager, we got into the subject of sanctity of life. And uh, she very much was kind of like pushing back against the, you know, the Christian traditional position of being pro-life and sanctity of life. And, and, you know, I watched over the next few years, though, how God just changed her perspective. And didn't just change her perspective, but, I mean, lit that girl on fire. I mean, so she's suddenly a huge, like, she's like the pro-life advocate in the family. And she's online, and, and it's all through online and with friends telling her stories. Like, here's my testimony. Here's what I believe. Here's how God has transformed my thinking about this. And I was coming out of the 745 chapel this morning and a family came up to me, a family, and they have a teenager. And they said to me, they said, you know, we want you to tell your daughter, thank you for her online testimony around sanctity of life issues. Because because of her testimony, our daughter is going to DC this week to walk in the March for Life. I mean, there's nothing better a parent could hear. Our transformations, our conversions, the way God is shaping us becomes the content of our testimony, the living proof that there is a living God who is working in this world, shaping sinners into saints from one degree of glory to the next. As 1 Peter 3.15 says, always be prepared to give account for the hope that is in you. Whereas a Sri Lankan pastor, D.T. Niles, likes to say evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. What is the vision God has placed on us here at Christ Church Plano? Christ Church Plano exists to invite ordinary people to know Jesus and to become like him for the sake of the world. And it's the invitation part that we struggle with. But God has made us, formed us to be the evangelist. This is not something that you need to work to become. This is not something that you need to be guilted into. This is something you simply need to remember by the basis of your baptism. That God has made you by nature of being a Jesus follower, a peculiar person in this world. He's given you a power that this world cannot even comprehend as you speak. And he has made the living proof evident right in your own life. I close with this story. There was in the hometown I grew up, there was a young, angry atheist and high school student and articulate and angry about, about anyone with Christianity or any religion. And his, his best friend, um, like him, didn't believe, and then got converted. Horror of horrors, got converted, became a Christian. And for the next year, this new convert Christian, his best friend, kept inviting him to church. There was something strangely captivating about the way he talked about Jesus, something peculiar and weird, but kind of captivating in its weirdness. 
And there was a sense of power in all of those conversations that was going on in a weird way. And there was proof in his life because he really was a changed person. And so after a year, that hardened atheist finally said yes. After hundreds of invitations turned down, finally said, fine, he'd go. And he came to church. He accepted the invitation. And that night had a profound, dramatic conversion, met Jesus and walked out as a Christian. See, in this story, I'm not the evangelist. I'm the atheist. It was my best friend, Jay, who relentlessly, lovingly invited me to church. No gift, and I, I, no gift can compare. I, I've had so many gifts in my life. So many gifts, and, the, and the, I still keep getting them. Loving wife, loving children, this church family. I mean, just the gifts are enormous in my life. But hear this. As amazing as all those gifts are, no gift in my life will ever compare to the gift that he gave me of inviting me to church. Because without that invitation, I would never know the one who gives me all these gifts. In 2020, your family members and your coworkers and your schoolmates and your neighbors will not be dramatically changed by fad diets or promotions at work or from the election cycle. But in 2020 and beyond, your family and your coworkers and your schoolmates and your neighbors will be radically transformed. And the greatest gift you can give to them is as you invite them to church. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.